0: have your Bible, turn with me to uh, Colossians chapter 3, Colossians chapter 3, I'm going to be looking actually at verses 1 through 14 this morning, in your bulletin it says 1 through 11, Uh, I made, extended that to 14 uh, this weekend and that will be represented on the screen behind me or you can turn there in your Bible uh, if you would like. We are right in the middle, well not in the middle anymore, we're at the end (laughs) Of our series that we've been doing the last couple of weeks called The Kind of Church We Want to Be. We'll be starting our fall series through the Old Testament book of Judges uh, beginning next week. But we've been in this series, The Kind of Church We Want to Be. And uh, basically, uh, I mentioned this the past couple of weeks, but there's this book called The Culture Code by Daniel Coyle that I read in the spring. And it, it's All those books are the same, Uh, essentially, they all say about the same thing. And one of those business books, they all say that healthy organizations, uh, healthy uh, churches, you could add to that, uh, that are growing and healthy and stable is they know who they are. They they know their priorities and they are able to name them. And so that's what we've been doing for the past uh, four weeks. We've been trying to name, start down the road of naming what's important to us, and we looked at the, f- number, uh, the first week that we're a place of the word. We want to be a place of the book. Everything we do flows out of the Bible. Why? Because this is God's word to us. And it's our only rule for faith and life. Secondly, last week we looked at we want to be a place of grace. Uh, we want to be a place where you can acknowledge uh, that you're a sinner and that you need something. We all desperately need uh, the healing work of Jesus in our lives. And then lastly, this morning, we're going to conclude by focusing on uh, being a place of change. We want to be a place of change. And to do that, we're going to look at Colossians 3, 1 through 14. This is God's word. Follow along with me. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you've died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetedness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked, when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew and circumcised and uncircumcised, uncir- barbarian and scathian, slave, free, In perfect harmony. This is God's word. Let me pray and ask God to come help us this morning through his spirit. Let's pray together. Father we do need your spirit to take this word and to uh, apply it to our hearts. Would you uh, show us uh, the goodness of Jesus this morning through this passage? Uh, we would be very thankful do these things in Jesus' name, amen. So the question we want to look at this morning is, how do people change? Notice the question. I didn't say, do you want to change? I think that's pretty obvious. Every single person in this room this morning would say, I want to change something about myself. We all have those areas that we look at and we say, I wish I weren't like that. Or I wish I didn't do these particular things. But we have these things in our lives that are so hard for us to let go of. And we want to let go of them. But it seems like those things begin to dominate us more than anything else. And we feel hopeless. We all want to change this morning. The question is not, do you want to change? The question, rather, is how do you change? And we have all sorts of ways that we try to change things, don't we? Tim Keller says that uh, people, he puts it in three categories of the way people attempt to change things in their life. And he, number one, he says uh, people start down the road in what he calls uh, the me- mechanistic way of change. And that is if you just adopt the correct procedure. If you just find that right plan, that three-step plan, and you lock into that and follow those three steps, then you will change. Problem is, most of us have probably tried those plans, and they do not bring about lasting change, but only temporary change. Or there's the moralistic approach. And that's the approach where you see that what you need to change is simply a new set of rules, or some additional rules. And the problem with that is, that we think if we can follow these correct set of rules, we will change. And so the focus is on your willpower. And that often leads to loads of shame because that willpower lasts uh, a couple of weeks, a couple of months at best, and then you fail again. And so you beat yourself up and you feel like a failure and you have more shame in your life. Or lastly, he mentions the other way we try to change is what he calls the mystical view of change. And that is uh, where you, you see change is this emotional experience that you have, where change is something that simply just sweeps over you. And the problem with that is that it's impossible for us to sustain those levels of emotional intensity in our lives, and it ends up leading to burnout. And so when you look at your life this morning and think about your life, where is it this morning that you're hoping to change? See, we want to be a place at Faith Church of good news. And a place that preaches the good news of Jesus. And one of the things we need to understand is that the good news of Jesus, yes, it's when I die I get to go to heaven, and that's really, really good news. But it's way more than that. The good news that we preach about Jesus also redeems you and changes you. And so how do you change? Three things this morning we want to see in this passage. Change involves faith. It involves fighting, secondly. And thirdly and finally, we'll see that it involves focus. And so faith, fight, and focus are the three points this morning. And again, change, uh, this is not exhaustive, of course. um, But this gets us down the road of the way the Bible thinks about how people change. So number one, faith. Look at Colossians 3 in that passage passage that we read. It's really interesting. Paul says that because you have been transformed by Jesus, if you are a believer in Jesus this morning, because of that, there are things in your life that you should stop doing. And also, on the flip side, there are things, if you look at the passage, that you need to start doing. And anytime you and I think about future change and we say, how do people change? Or you need to change something about ourselves. Normally our knee jerk reaction, our de- the default mode in our hearts is, okay, I got it. Tell me what I need to do so that I can change and so that it- this can be a quick fix. What's interesting though is the Bible never starts that way. The Apostle Paul never starts that way. If you look at this passage, before we ever start talking about what you must do, Paul says, I want you to remember who you are. Because change comes in your life when it begins with your heart being firmly fixed on who you are in Jesus. And I'm going to tell you, we could spend hours on these first few verses. And I'm going to read through some of these verses and comment on them. And I want you to sit back and I want you to listen Actively listen and take this in. We've come to church, some of us for a long time, me included. And we hear some of these descriptions that Paul's laying out of the Christian. And it tends to be like, okay, whatever, one ear and out the other. Or a boring yawn, I've heard this all before. Listen to what Paul is saying here. It is mind-blowing. Verse 1. You have been raised... Not will be. You have been raised with Christ. That sounds like language describing you going into heaven. And if that's what you're thinking, that's exactly what Paul wants you to think. You have been raised. See what he's saying is the amount of power that it's going to take to raise you from the dead and put you and present you perfectly before the throne of God. That power and authority... Paul saying, has already invaded your life now through the Holy Spirit. And yet we have such defeatist lives when it comes to dealing with sin around us and in our own life. Verse 3, you have died and your life is hidden in Christ. And so not only do we see here that the power you've received from Jesus is as good as if you were already in heaven, It's saying that the old you has died. And that you have been hidden with Christ. What does that mean exactly? Look at verse 9. And look at how Paul works this out. This this idea uh, that Paul works out a lot in all of his teaching. And we saw this a lot in the book of Galatians. uh, He calls it union with Christ. Now, whatever's true of you is true of Jesus. And look at how he talks about it in verse 9. The old you was killed with Christ. This is mysterious, of course, but he's saying that the old has died and the new has been raised and now lives in you. And so he's saying that you have already in some definitive way put off the old man, if you're a believer, and put on the new. And Paul is saying that the new you is the real you this morning. We don't feel that way. The new you is the real you. Look at verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Amazing. Verse 12, let's keep going. Chosen people, holy and loved. And maybe you sit here this morning and you say, Okay, Jason, I hear this, but I don't feel very holy. I don't feel very loved. Maybe you're thinking, how can someone like me, who's done the things that I've done, And who's been the places that I've been and said the things that I've said and thought the things that I've thought this week. How can I be loved and holy? Well, I'll tell you how. Because Jesus shed his blood on a cross. And if you trust in Jesus by faith, then that means that God is for you and not against you. It means if you trust in Jesus by faith that you are declared holy not on any basis of your own righteousness and own record but on the record on the perfect record of Jesus Christ alone it reminds me uh, we love the US Open at our house i don't know if we have any other tennis fans in the building but i love uh, we were watching the US Open this weekend and Serena and Venus were playing it was a big match and one of the commercials was the new Nike commercial. You've seen this? With Serena Williams and her father. And the camera pans in and you see Serena Williams at 10 years old, maybe younger. And her father, her coach, Richard Williams, is feeding her tennis balls. As a young child, they have this, the cameras on them. And he says, this is you at the U.S. Open. At 10 years old, this is you at the U.S. Open. Keep that service motion. Yeah, right there, charge the net, lean in, switch to the backhand. And then the camera fades and you see Serena Williams now at the U.S. Open center court and a U.S. Open champion. And over and over in the commercial, you hear her father saying, just like you're at the U.S. Open, just like you're at the US Open what is he doing as she's practicing he's reminding her of who she is he's wanting her to imagine herself there at center court at the US Open and that's exactly what the apostle paul is doing here in colossians chapter 3 this is who you are raised from with jesus dead to sin A changed people. A holy people. Imagine yourself there. He's saying raised with Christ. Hidden in him. Appearing with Christ in glory. That is who you are. Who is forming you this morning? What is shaping your view of you this morning? Something is shaping you. Every single one of us this morning it's Jesus and what he says about you shaping you or is someone else or the world shaping your identity. You want to change this morning, it starts with remembering who you are, not with what you need to do. Your identity is in Christ. And that must form and shape who you are. Why? Because to the extent to the extent that you believe that that you and your relationship with Jesus is secure, is to the extent that you'll be able to put to death sin and be transformed and changed. So the first thing, how do people change? Through faith, believing who they are in Jesus. And then secondly, through fighting. Look at verse 5. Put to death what is earthly in you. Notice the active. Then he goes on and describes what is earthly, and he's not talking about the physical earth. What is earthly, if you read the rest of verse 5, is sin, the curse, the fall, those, those things. And notice he says, put to death, that is an active word. An active word that Paul's using. Paul is not doing what we normally do with sin. Ah, it's no big deal. Ah, it'll be fine. Paul is not saying that we need to wound our sin. Very strong. He's saying we need to kill it. It's what the Puritan John Owen called the mortification of sin, meaning that we need to ruthlessly and aggressively try to eradicate sin from our lives. And again, I think it's very challenging because that's not the way we think about sin. We're very good sin managers. We're very good at compartmentalizing our sin or suppressing it and holding it down. It reminds me of that game when at Chuck E. Cheese. I don't even know if they still have this. Game, but the Wacamo where you have the padded club and all these mo's start popping up, and you start hitting it and pushing them down, and then what happens? Pops right back up. That's what we do with sin: is instead of killing it, we wound it or hit it and suppress it and push it down, and and, and it keeps popping back up on uh, back up on us, and we wonder why. And the problem is we're suppressing it, not killing it. And Paul says we need to kill it. John Owen in his book, The Mortification of Sin, says be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Why does he say that? He says that out of love because sin wants to destroy you this morning. Verse 6, on account of these things, what things? Verse 5, the wrath of God is coming. And if the wrath of God is coming, uh, and if the sins in our life bring God's wrath, then that means they should also bring ours. And we should get rid of them. It uh, it makes me think about, and maybe you've experienced this in your life, or have been with someone, or uh, someone in your family, and you've gone to the doctor, and you've heard those dreaded words, you have cancer. Why do we hate those words? Well, because you know that if you don't do something radical and to get that out of your body and out of your life, then it will kill you. Because that's what cancer does. It destroys people. And we go to such great lengths in order to destroy cancer. We inject radioactive chemicals into our body and we go through the pain of chemotherapy and we get things cut out of our bodies. Why? Because if we don't, we will die. And so we kill it. Because if we don't, it will kill us. And that is a picture of what Paul is saying here. Everything we, in our power, we need to do. Just like we would with cancer, we need to try to eradicate it from our bodies and from our lives. And instead we say, is it really that big a deal? And you see what Paul's doing. He's trying to cha- get us to change the way we see sin. And he wants us to see it in a new way. It's not just simply breaking a law or a mistake. Paul is saying that is inadequate. Pain- uh, sin is a killer and it's something that will destroy you. Verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetedness. And here's a throwaway that we tend to just kind of overlook because we're focusing on all the real uh, nasty stuff, which is idolatry. Very interesting. Easy to miss. But, and we can't work out a whole theology of idols right now, but let me just simply sum it up this way the killing of sin in your life and putting it to death does not start with your behaviors. It does not start uh, with your actions or your circumstances. It begins in the heart where your idols live and have their being. And that's important because if you don't frame the discussion on change and how people change, In these terms, then you'll end up treating sin very superficially in your life and you'll never really change. And perhaps that's why some of you have never been able to change because you're fighting sin at a surface level and at a behavior level instead of focusing on the heart. There's always something deeper going on in the midst of your sin than just breaking rules. There's always more to it than just simply, oh, I lied or I lusted or I gossiped. Or I'm fearful and anxious. All of those things are symptoms, the Bible says, of something much deeper going on. Let's take the example of stealing. Let's say you stole stole something. And it's not just that you stole something, but it's deeper. You're greedy, perhaps, or you covet, or maybe you're angry because God has given something to someone else that you want and you don't have. And you're willing to do anything to get it. And what goes on in that moment is that you bow down and worship. You are worshiping there the thing that you want. And you are saying, that is more important to me right now than God. And that is more important than anything he will give me. And so you take it. You see it? Way deeper than just external behaviors. You've got to get to that level if you ever want to eradicate sin from your life. And so here's the question. What do you think your idols will give you this morning that Jesus will not give you? What do you think your idols will give you that Jesus will not give you? That's where you've got to get. It's those things in your life that must be put to death because the key to change is the loves of the heart. Thirdly, change, faith, fighting, and lastly, focusing. Look at, verses, uh, look at verse 2 again, and then I'll go through a couple of other verses to kind of uh, make this uh, stand out a little bit on where, where I want to head with this point. Verse 2, Set your mind on things that are above, not on earthly things. Remember what earthly things are. Earthly things are what he listed in 5, the curse and sin and things of that nature. Verse 8, need to put off those things. Verses 12 through 14, he says, you don't only need to put off something, you need to put on something. And I think that, again, that's we don't think that way. I think we're really good at kind of, this is my sin, I need to repent of it. But do we always put something on? Oftentimes we don't. We've also got to put something on. Paul is saying, to experience lasting change, you've got to replace your sin with something better and more beautiful. Think about the way we normally think about accountability groups. Are accountability groups good? Absolutely, they're good. But the accountability groups that I've been in, we tend to focus on what? Putting off. We tend to focus on... Our sin and what's wrong with us. That's necessary, by the way. And our problems and struggles and the things we need to push off. But Jesus is nowhere in the equation. We never talk about the things that we need to put on. About putting on Christ. Set your mind on things that are above, not on earthly things. Translation, set your mind on Jesus, not on your sin. I think that's what Paul's saying. It's like the old Puritan that says, For every one glance at your sin, gaze ten times more on the beauty of Jesus. Fill your heart and mind with the gospel. Why? Because when you're captivated with Jesus, what happens to your sin? It begins to die. And it begins to melt away because Jesus is more beautiful than the thing that you're after. It's why 2 Peter Chapter 1, verses 1 through 9 is one of my favorite sections of Scripture. You should read it later this afternoon. But it's talking about uh, putting on and all these things that you are to become as a Christian, more loving and more faithful and more holy and being created and and, and, uh, taking on the character of Jesus. And then you get to the very end and Peter says, if you're not growing in these things and these things aren't true of you, it's because you're not working hard enough. He doesn't say that, by the way. Or it's because you're not committed enough. Or it's because you got the wrong uh, three-step program. Now, you know what he says? If those things aren't true of you, it's because you've forgotten the gospel. It's because you've forgotten that you've been cleansed from your sin. You've forgotten Jesus and so lasting change happens when, you, when your heart is captured by a new affection. When you take something off, yes, but when you replace it with the beauty of who Jesus is. It reminds me of Thomas Chalmers, founder of the Free Church of Scotland. He has this famous sermon called, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. He understood this well. He was a pastor in Kilmeny, Scotland. And for eight years, he would tell his people to to behave and straighten up, giving them the law. In 1811, something changed. And he realized that the power was not in behaving, but it was actually in believing. And so for the next four years, every Sunday, he would set before his congregation the beauties of Jesus the beauties and wonders of grace. And there was a person in his congregation who heard him before 1811 and after 1811 and listen to what he writes. Chalmers would bend over the pulpit and he would press us to take the gift of Jesus as if he had held it in his hand at that very moment and he would not be satisfied until every single one of us had gotten possession of it. And often after the sermon was over and the psalm was sung and he rose to pronounce the benediction, he would break out in some new fresh entreaty of the gospel proclaiming the beauties of Jesus, unwilling to let us go until he made one more effort to persuade us to accept it. Chalmers understood something, didn't he? That the heart must always grow at gazing at the beauties and the glory of Jesus so that the old affections of your heart would be replaced with the expulsive power of a new one. Friends, change comes. We'll never, will we'll never truly have long lasting change until Jesus becomes more beautiful than our sin. Until Jesus becomes more beautiful Than our idols. Because the gospel is the way the heart is transformed. You cannot say to your heart. And wag your finger at your heart. And say stop it heart. I wish it were that easy don't you. That will never work. Instead of wagging your finger. At your heart. You need something to melt your heart. You need Jesus to recapture your affections. Because the beauty of Christ. Christ. That is who your heart and who you are truly looking for. Friends, and it's Jesus and only Him that has the power to change those things about yourself that you desperately want to change. A place of change. That's what we want to be. A place of transformation. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you've made us and declared us holy because of Jesus, that we're loved people, that we are hidden in Christ, that we have been raised, that the old man has died and the new has come. Would you give us faith this morning to remember and to believe who we really are and who you've made us to be? Would you also forgive us this morning for being sin managers instead of sin killers? And lastly, I pray that through your spirit, you would come and make Jesus come alive to our hearts in a very real way and perhaps in a new way so that he becomes more beautiful than everything around us. In Jesus' name, amen.